welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I thank you for drawing us together as you have today, and I pray, as always, that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. In this new study, we're exploring six different people in the New Testament whose lives were radically altered when they encountered the fullness of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. They have much to tell us. Last week, we looked at Nicodemus, the religious leader who learned that all his efforts to remain free of sin would never gain him the relationship with God he hoped for. He learned that forgiveness could only come from being born again by the Spirit of God, a work that only God himself could do. This week, we're looking at the transformation of a woman whose story is very familiar to many of us, the Samaritan woman who met Jesus at the well just outside the village of Sahar. I love to teach about her because she really reminds me in so many ways of my own story, for she also had wasted many years of her life looking for love and acceptance in all the wrong places. To fully grasp how remarkable her encounter was, though, we first need to understand a little bit about the people group to which she belonged, the Samaritans. The Samaritans came into being hundreds of years before when the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into two different kingdoms after the death of King Solomon. Ten tribes formed the northern kingdom called Israel with their capital city of Samaria and the remaining two tribes formed the southern kingdom called Judah whose capital was Jerusalem. Both of these kingdoms would eventually fall to different foreign invaders, but at different times. The northern kingdom of Israel fell first, conquered by the Assyrians, who brought in their own people to colonize their new territory. That was common practice, mostly done to weaken the conquered people, and that is exactly what happened. Many of the northern Jews ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians, and that intermarriage gave rise to the Samaritan people, who were racially part Assyrian and part Jewish. To the southern Jews, that was a blatant act of political treachery and disobedience to God, whose law expressly forbade intermarriage with foreigners. Because they were a people of mixed blood, the Samaritans were despised by the pure-blooded Jews. They openly cursed them in their synagogues. In fact, the word Samaritan was one of the most hateful words a person could ever use. Samaritan testimony was never accepted in a Jewish court of law, and in the unlikely event a Samaritan wanted to convert to Judaism, the request would be refused because the Jewish rabbis believed that there was no way for these heretics to be saved. In all fairness, though, these feelings of hatred were mutual. There were many other tensions between these two neighbours, some were long-standing. 
For example, they strongly disagreed as to where God should be worshipped. The Jews maintained that true worship was only possible at the temple in Jerusalem. Conversely, the Samaritans held that God should be worshipped on Mount Gerizim in their own territory, because that was the place that God had first laid out the blessings of obedience that his people could enjoy in the promised land. Some tensions were more recent. Josephus, a Jewish historian of the first century, tells us of an incident that took place sometime between AD 6 and 9, when a group of Samaritans somehow gained access to the temple in Jerusalem one night. Knowing that priests would become ritually unclean, if they came into contact with a dead body and that that would prevent them from leading worship in the temple, the Samaritans scattered human bones across the temple porches and throughout the sanctuary. Josephus says that the desecration actually interrupted Passover that year and it considerably raised the level of enmity between the two groups. By the time of Christ, the Romans ruled all of Judea and the Jews lived in the area around Jerusalem and also in the far north of the country around the Sea of Galilee. The Samaritans continued to live in the area just north of Jerusalem and immediately to the west of the Jordan River. Consequently, their territory formed a kind of barrier for any Jew traveling from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north of the country. To travel through Samaria took about three days, but should a Jew be foolish enough to go that way, they could not count on receiving any help along the way from the local inhabitants. In fact, the Samaritans would often go out of their way to make the journey as difficult for the Jews as possible. So understandably, the Jews avoided going through that region altogether by crossing to the eastern side of the Jordan River whenever they had to travel northwards. John begins the account in John chapter 4 verse 1. He says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. As Jesus' popularity grew, he chose to withdraw to the region of Galilee in the north. Why do you suppose John would say that Jesus had to go through Samaria if Jews usually went to great lengths to avoid it? He had to go because there was someone he had to meet. And not only was that person a Samaritan, as if that were not bad enough, it was a woman. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sahar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus sat down at the well in the unrelenting midday heat as the disciples went into town to look for food, and though it was customary for women to draw water in the cool of the evening, this woman came to the well in the fierce midday heat while all the others were sheltering from it. Why do you suppose she did that? Well, I think the answer is obvious. She wanted to avoid the other women and chose to go when no one else would be there. She probably never expected to see anyone there, much less a man and a Jew at that. Little did she know he'd gone out of his way to meet with her. It may seem unimportant to us that he asked her for a drink, but it was rare for a Jewish rabbi to speak to any woman publicly, much less a Samaritan woman. In fact, according to Jewish custom, he would have become ceremonially unclean if he so much as touched the water pot she had touched. From what John tells us, it's plain that the woman understood that, for she even asked Jesus, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? John explains in an understated way for the sake of his Gentile readers that Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. But Jesus was no ordinary Jew. I think that there's more going on here than meets the eye as Jesus begins to engage in conversation with the woman. She was so sure that he wanted nothing to do with her because of who she was, and yet he did. She thought that any contact with her would defile him somehow, and I wonder if we're any different. I mean, have you ever felt that Jesus is somehow too holy for you to approach? Do you carry a burden with you that you feel certain he would never want to touch? Let me tell you, Jesus not only wanted to lift this woman's burden, he wanted to touch her heart also. And just as he did not reject her, he will not reject you. Very gently, Jesus continued. He answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. As we saw in our last lesson, God often speaks to people in ways that they can understand and he'll use well-known or even everyday things to communicate deep spiritual truths to people. In that dry and dusty land, not surprisingly, he used water to convey a spiritual truth. Most of the year, the people of that region would draw water from cisterns that had been filled with rainwater, which then stood stagnant in the tank. So a very high priority was placed on what they called living water, in other words, running water that welled up from a spring. As the name living water suggests, they believed that it brought a life all of its own, and it was highly sought after, especially as the kind of water they would use in their purification rituals. This was not the first use of living water to indicate something supernatural, though. In Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God likened himself to living waters when he warned his people about turning away from him. 
There, God revealed, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In calling himself the spring of living water, God is proclaiming himself to be the source of life. Only he can truly quench our thirst for love, acceptance, and significance. So when Jesus said he was able to give her living water, he was in fact revealing himself to be God. But the woman didn't understand yet. She was thinking in earthly, not spiritual terms. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? I think she rather rudely tries to shut down the conversation by asking if he thinks he's greater than Jacob who'd given them the well in the first place. And The somewhat humorous answer to her question would have been, well, yes, because Jesus is far greater than both Jacob and his well. He is the well that would never run dry. Jesus is the sustainer of life, and he is the only one who can quench the deep thirst of her soul. But Jesus very lovingly did not allow her to change the conversation. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. His offer is amazing. He promises to quench her thirst forever, no matter how deep it may be. And he reveals that those who come to him will be filled with the life that comes from him, eternal life. She may have been intrigued by what Jesus said, but her response was still focused on her immediate physical needs. She was so tired of trudging to the well in the heat each day to avoid the judgmental looks of the other women that she longingly asks for the water he offers so that she won't have to keep making the trip. Jesus knew what was in her mind, but he also understood the real reason for her pain, and he wanted to deal with that. And so in verse 16, He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And there was the heart of the problem. This woman had been married to five different men and she was not even married to the sixth man that she was with. What could have happened? Why so many broken relationships? Had she just been looking for love in all the wrong places? Did she just have bad luck finding the right person? 
Or could it perhaps have been because she was barren? Could that have been the reason that she felt such shame and was driven from relationship to relationship because she could not have a child? We don't know, but we can certainly understand why she avoided the other women. It's easy to judge other people when we don't know what's gone on in their lives, when we haven't had to walk in their shoes. Just like the rest of us, I'm sure this woman was thirsting for love and acceptance, with a desperate need to fill the emptiness inside and belong. But she had only met with failure. The truth about grace is that it helps us to see ourselves as we really are. And if we will humbly agree with what God shows us, we'll find that we can be forgiven and made whole again. But this woman wasn't quite ready to do that. Look at the way she tried to redirect the conversation away from her sin and her need by focusing on the contentious issues of the day. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Remember the Jews and Samaritans disagreed as to where God should be worshipped? Personally, I don't think she cared about who was right and who was wrong about that. She knew that Jesus obviously had some insight into her life and her struggle. Perhaps she wondered if someone else had told him about her. Whatever the case, she quickly used a contentious topic to try to change the subject. Jesus replied using the respectful form of address in those days, saying to her, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. He addressed her politely, which is quite remarkable when you consider how others might have addressed her. Jesus revealed to her that worshipping God is far more than a matter of where religious duties are performed. With his coming, the old things were taking on a new depth, a new meaning. In verse 23, he revealed that the hour had arrived for people to worship God in the spirit and in truth. That God the Father was seeking people who wanted a real relationship with him. Why does the need to worship in the spirit and in truth make so many people feel uncomfortable? I can almost feel how cornered she felt when in one final attempt to evade him, she says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. The Samaritans used only the first five books of the Old Testament, and yet they too were expecting the promised Messiah, the anointed one God had promised to send. But whereas the Jews expected the Messiah to be a political deliverer, the Samaritans expected him to be a great teacher. 
And so she tries to end the conversation by saying, in effect, I don't understand all of this, but I do know that there is one coming who will help it all make sense, for the Messiah will explain everything. Then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is astounding. It is the first time in his ministry that Jesus has been this explicit about who he is, and he chose to reveal this truth about himself to a despised Samaritan woman. You can almost sense the silence that fell on the conversation at that moment. If this were a film, I would imagine that there'd be close-ups of the woman's surprised face and Jesus looking intently at her. And then into this intense silence burst the disciples with their lunch in verse 27. <laughs> now, I frequently sense in the Gospels that the disciples' timing was a bit off, and this certainly shows the point. You can imagine them suddenly and loudly bursting in on the scene, and startled by what they see, their voices suddenly die down. They look at each other, wondering what's going on, but no one has the courage to say anything. The tension was broken, and what did the woman do? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. When she saw Christ for who he is, everything changed for her. John tells us that she even left her water jar at the well as she ran back to the town. Now that may seem like such a small thing, and yet think about it. This water jar had controlled her life only moments before, and yet she leaves it behind, forgotten at the well. This water jar had controlled her life only moments before, and yet she leaves it behind, forgotten at the well. It's not that important after all. Not only that, but she goes back to the people in the town, the very ones she's been so anxious to avoid before, to tell them all that has happened. And that is the amazing thing about encountering the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He alone has the power to free us from the shame of our past and from what has controlled us. And the freedom his grace gives us is a testimony to share with others. Her message is as simple as it is powerful. Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Do you notice she's not ashamed anymore? In fact, she's willing to use her past life as the basis for her testimony. And though the question she asks is a very simple one, could this be the Christ? It is one that invites investigation and draws people to go in search of Christ for themselves. There is so much that we can learn from her about how to share what Christ has done for us. I marvel at Christ's kindness to this woman, for in doing what he did, Jesus entrusted the gospel message to someone that no one else would have even spoken to.
The good news for you and for me is that God's choice of unlikely messengers hasn't changed. So there's room for all of us. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Are you as encouraged as I am that the disciples were still missing the point of what was going on? They were so focused on the physical food they'd just bought that they completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was speaking about spiritual food, a spiritual sustenance that comes from doing the Father's will, sower and reaper working together to bring in a harvest of souls. It's very likely that as he tells them to look at the fields that are ripe for harvest, he's pointing towards the people of the town who are rushing towards them, wanting to see for themselves the truth of the Samaritan woman's witness. Dressed in their light brown clothing, they may indeed have looked like ripened grain bobbing in the wind. And this was just the beginning of that harvest. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Notice how this has become personal for them. They had now heard his message for themselves and they recognised that Jesus is not only the Messiah, he is the saviour of the world, not just of the Jews or even half-Jews, but of the Gentiles also. We learn so much about the grace of God in Christ from the Samaritan woman. We learn that he sees every soul as valuable. He is seeking out every one of us, no matter who we are or what we've been. He helps us to see ourselves as we really are. And it is there that we are made whole because once things are exposed, things can be healed. And finally, the grace of God in Christ sets us free to share with others. We too can work in his fields and bring in the harvest he so desires. May it be so for all of us. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. 
Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.